Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would this morning draw our attention to your glory, to the manifold works of Christ on our behalf, to the purchasing power of his shed blood, to the work of intercession that continues to this day and forever for all who are in Christ. Lord, for the guarantee of a better covenant that we have in Jesus our Lord, that you would draw our attention to the certainty of the oath that you swore swore unto yourself, having no one higher to swear. Lord, making your covenant with your people, going all the way back to the promise of Abraham fulfilled in Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our ears to the manifold and amazing and intricate value and truth of Scripture, and that you would open our, the eyes of our understanding to comprehend, Lord, the many things that you have placed there, and that we would treasure them with deep affections as, Lord, silver and gold that are mined in the earth, that we would see, Lord, the great value of what you have hid in Christ our Lord, and that you would give us grace through the Spirit's means and use of this time and the preaching of this message today to add to our understanding, to add to our faith, Lord. We thank you for these moments we have together. If you are glorified in this service, it will be entirely your Spirit's work. I pray later as we partake in this covenant meal of communion together that we would remember and proclaim the finished work of Calvary until you come. I pray this year, Lord, as we are in the precipice of marking another year of time, Lord, that we would place faith in your grace and in your means, Lord, to preserve and to protect and to supply our every need. We thank you for the testimony of your faithfulness, Lord, this last year. We give you honor and praise for every bit of the assurance that we have of the safety and provision that we enjoy, and ultimately for our salvation that is certain in Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in His holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Welcome to the worship of the Lord together as His assembly today and to the proclamation of His holy word. What a joy and privilege it is for us to open up the Scriptures together and to behold the riches of Christ. Turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to Matthew. Cha- I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 this morning will be our primary text, verses 11 through 25. A brief reminder while you're turning there, our series on Communion Sunday, first Sunday of the month, has been focusing on the book of Hebrews. Last time we were here, we discussed Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 11, where the mystery of Melchizedek, that shadowy figure, mysterious and monumental, all the way back to Genesis 14, is revealed in his office in Christ. The mystery of Melchizedek, revealed to us in Hebrews, shows us that Melchizedek himself personified a higher priestly order. Also, he uh, personified two offices in one, priest and king. Also, righteousness and peace came together in the personification of what Melchizedek represented in the Old Covenant. And finally, Son of Man and Son of God were reminded of them as we see that Melchizedek's story or that narrative is recorded void of lineage to which our author uses as an object lesson or appeals as an object lesson to show that Christ is a high priest forever. So that brings us to our sermon today, which will be titled, Perfect Order. We will see a little bit more detail and description and some of the technical differences, if you will, 
between the priestly order of Melchizedek fulfilled in Christ in distinction from the Levitical or the priestly order of the Old Testament. So now if you're able, I would encourage you to stand with me and let us read these words together. Follow me as I read Hebrews chapter 7 verses 11 through 25. Here we have the holy word of God. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who in his exalted state right now rules and reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. And that is the opening of our book today. Our author labors to show his audience who valued and had an intricate understanding of the Old Covenant order, exactly how and in what ways Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament and transcended it, surpassed it, eclipsed it, went beyond. Therefore, in Christ's mediatory work and in His priestly role, the glory and the power, the efficacy, its power to actually accomplish the remission of sins and the, holy, or the reconciliation with the Holy God is in view. And it's extremely powerful to, uh, to behold as we read it in context. The unique aspects of Jesus' priesthood would have been surprising given the background of the first century Jews to whom we assume the letter was written, perhaps even shocking. How is it that one, for instance, who was not born of the tribe of Levi, could be a, a priest at all, let alone the priest of priests, if you will. But uh, in, in the context of this background, Hebrews 7 becomes so important. The author of Hebrews does not merely aim to convince his audience that Jesus Christ is indeed the priest to end all priests and his order is superior. But he even goes a step beyond, as I say, to show the surpassing glory of Christ, even in the technical details of his office and role as Christ the high priest. These highlights of Jesus' divinity and sufficiency are couched in the proclamation of certain laws abrogated, that means 
uh, surpassed or rendered obsolete in their fulfillment. Certain sanctions of the legal code of the Old Testament, especially as they related to the uh, ceremonial law and the temple prescriptions for worship, certain ones are rendered obsolete in Jesus. They no longer have standing and are not valid in and of themselves. And the old order as it was is now a thing of the past because what it pictured has, is now established with certainty and goes far beyond, in fact, anything that the old order could accomplish. They, that is, this old order and its attending laws have served their usefulness in preparing the way and provisionally governing temple worship until Christ. But now, those laws, that old order, it bows to Him, so to speak. Similar to John the Baptist, I see an analogy in the Scriptures as Christ is introduced by the one who would go before. What does John the Baptist say? He points to Him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And in so doing, He's directing His followers to follow one who will now surpass Him in efficacy and power and in glory. I must decrease he must increase. So it is with the old Levitical order. It served its purpose. It pointed the priestly order of old, the Levites, when they were rightly honoring God's word and doing their duty in the temple. It pointed those laws and those uh, servants in that office. It pointed to Christ. It said, behold the Lamb of God. But when he came in the midst, the position of those and the significance of those means took the same attitude and position as John the Baptist. I now decrease so that he may increase. Thus, behind, uh, thus, with the proclamation of Behold the Lamb, an entirely new paradigm, a page in history was turned. The world, the universe, will never be the same as a result of the incarnation and the work of Jesus Christ in redemption. Once the perfect has come, once Jesus Christ has arrived on the scene as he has now for two millennia, the predecessor must decrease and he will be forever and increasingly so glorified as the elect come into the kingdom and join their voices with those who have gone before until that mighty multitude, the waterfall of praises that Revelation speaks of, is complete in glory. And so some of the process and some of the mechanics of this actual shift are what is in view in Hebrews 7. Here's a heading and followed by three points. Changes, perfection, demands. So the perfect order demands some changes. Reading again in Hebrews 7:11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise and so on? Do you see that perfection demanded change? There would be something different, a shift. There would be a passing of the baton to a superior order. So the changes that came with the perfection of Christ are as follows, just by way of primary points this morning. First of all, an indestructible life in distinction from or verses or eclipsing, you could say, bodily descent. Indestructible life of Christ eclipses the bodily descent of the Levitical order. Secondly, a better hope. A better hope comes in verses 18 through 22. We'll see this versus the former commandment. You had the former commandment now eclipsed by a better hope. And thirdly, this morning, 
There is a continuance for eternity. Continue forever versus many in number. This is speaking of the priests. So the priests are many in number of the old order, but that has now been eclipsed by Christ who continues forever. First of all, the perfect order of Jesus Christ, the perfection attainable in Christ alone, demands the uh, surpassing or a change in the nature of the order of the priesthood, what once was demonstrated or evident in bodily descent is now going to be eclipsed by indestructible life. Let's again read our text, 7, 11 through 17. Now, if perfection has been, atta- had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning, again, bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And there's our central point. For it is witnessed of him, and you recall, this is a direct quotation from Psalm 110 that prophesied the change in priestly order. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. First of all, I'd like to draw your attention to a unique word. It appears only one other time in all of the scriptures. In Greek, it's teleosis. Teleosis, it's the word for perfection. It appears one other time. Turn over, let's cross-reference this because I think it's relevant in Luke 1.45. We are having just uh, gone through the Christmas season and now the new year being upon us. Scriptures like this may be fresh in our mind. This teleosis word appears when Elizabeth, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, prophesies. She speaks to Mary uh, in response to the situation that God has miraculously worked upon her, namely the incarnation of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see in verse 14 in Luke chapter 1, um, for instance, just give a little background. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is speaking of John the Baptist and some prophecies that came to Zechariah by the angel. This becomes a pattern in the early context of the Christmas story. First, uh, it is foretold by the angel to Zechariah that his wife would conceive and bear a son. Secondly, the angel comes and uh, says similar things to Mary. He will be great, he says in verse 32 of the same chapter. And uh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. After this announcement, Mary herself visits Elizabeth. And Elizabeth now, operating under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it says here in our text, she exclaimed with a loud cry, I should back up, and verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when I heard the sound of your greeting uh, came to my ears, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. That term fulfillment is the same as this term perfection, interestingly enough, in Hebrews 7.11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Elizabeth recognized that the significance of what was conceived in Mary, Jesus Christ, our Lord, was a fulfillment of what was spoken of old. And she declared that Mary was blessed to be included in this plan. And indeed, the whole world, all the believing world, would experience the blessing of the fulfillment of the old order in Christ. This Greek word, teleosis, its root is shared by the English word teleology. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a word that you're familiar with, but if you've done any apologetic work or reading, you might have you might be familiar with the teleological argument for the existence of God or something of that sort. Um, the idea is that there's patterns of design in nature that testify, in fact, to a designer. Teleology is a doctrine that holds to design and direction. That is that the phenomena, the things that we see, the evidence is explained by its final cause. The things that happen, the events that we see, we understand them in light of what they point towards. In biblical hermeneutics, in fact, in understanding the Bible as a whole, there is a teleosis to that task or that discipline. What the Bible says in muted or more veiled form in the Old Testament becomes more clear as we see the scriptures unfold the story of redemption. In this sense, the phenomena of the Old Testament are explained by its final cause. What was the explanation, in other words, of Abraham uh, told by God to offer his son as a sacrifice on a hill that scholars surmise may be exactly the same as Calvary, carrying the instrument of his own death up that hill with his father, and his father being the one who is uh, commanded to kill his son, and then his hand is stayed. We may look to the law if we were born at that time and think, what in the world was going on here? Hasn't it, isn't it the Lord our God who has decreed, thou shalt not murder? Why would God tell this father to kill his son? Well, a substitute sacrifice is supplied in the bush. But we see that there's a teleology in view, or a teleos in view here. These, this phenomena of olds is explained in what it points to. Because you see, there would be another son who would ascend a hill with the instrument of his own crucifixion, in this case, on his back. And when that event occur occurred, this time the father did not stay his hand. The son was crucified. And that son is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And so we see in these patterns in Scripture how this Greek word for perfection or fulfillment, teleosis, uh, takes shape. It tells us that the facts and the character attributed to the processes are a result of its director. They are being directed towards an end, shaped for a purpose. This is how our God works in history. 
This is how our God has revealed Himself. So when we get to Hebrews 7, with some of that background in view, we see now some more weight behind these words, do we not? Now if perfection or fulfillment or consummate reality of what had gone before had been attainable in the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? The point being, just as Isaac and Abraham were a type in that example I gave you of the father and the son and a sacrifice for sins, just a type, so the Levitical priesthood of old was a type of the intercessory, of the mediatory, of the atoning work of Christ in the future. If it had been sufficient, if it could really wash away sins, there would be no need for the perfection, for the fulfillment, for the next order according to Melchizedek to come. But indeed, we see that this is the argument. The event is coming which verifies, or the event of the Old Testament priesthood verifies the promise of what is to come. This is the way we see the scriptures unfolding. Completion, fulfillment, final stage of, the, of consummation that the process is heading towards. So when we see that there was changes that the perfect order demanded, we can see that the Levitical order, because of, it was insufficient and incomplete, needed to change. Attaining perfection meant that Christ would fulfill, would complete, and do so sufficiently, adequately, fully, and eternally what the old order prefigured. Secondly, and related to this, there's a change in law. Under this indestructible life versus bodily descent, we have a note in the text that there is a change in law when an or a change in order occurs. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Law contextually refers to the dictates or prescription for a certain order. I'll remind you of our text, our last text in Hebrews, of the definition of order. Order means a post, rank, position, which one holds in governing certain affairs. An order is equivalent to, or the term order becomes equivalent to the character and quality demanded of a certain office. So an order is basically a system of government according to a law or a set of dictates. There's a constitution, if you will, and there's an executor or executors. This is the idea. What our author is saying here is there's a change in both. There is a change in the fundamental structure of the nature of the priesthood. There's new directives and a new office holder. The new directives is uh, that there is one now that is witnessed by prophecies of old according to the order of Melchizedek. And not by the power of his repeating animal sacrifices do you uh, is is a true worship fulfilled, but instead by the power of an indestructible life and your faith in that resurrection power and in that work of the sacrifice of himself on Calvary is the new order. This is the change in the system, if you will. What is the nature of the change? Well, the old laws, you know, what actual law has changed, in other words, the laws of lineage with respect to priesthood are finished now. There used to be a commandment and directives 
that only a, only a certain person born in a certain, uh, according to a certain family lineage, and if they would wash themselves in a certain way and achieve a certain age, if all those fulfillments and conditions were met, then they were worthy to uh, act as priest on behalf of God's people, the Levitical order, and so on. Well, that has changed. These laws of lineage with respect to priesthood now give way to a new order where one has come who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, and we recognize him because he has an indestructible life. Death could not keep our high priest in the grave. And by this we see that he is the one prophesied of old. He is the fulfillment of the old order, ushering in the new. It's interesting, there's another word that is a particular note in verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now if you look at that word descended specifically, you find that it actually shares a similar root, or the root there is teleosis as well. Anat, uh, anatelio, or something of that nature, is the Greek for descended. And if we look in the lexicons, it means to come up or to complete a process, and uh, to set out in, in goal, to rise up after completing the necessary means or order or process. It's related to telos, uh, as we have seen the, the root of, our, of that other word, perfection. It means uh, more than just to descend from a particular order. Um, and of the prefix means to be up or completing a process. And tello is to set out uh, as to accomplish a goal. So when our author says, it is evident that the Lord descended from Judah, there is a momentous occasion in view here, even in the word that he has chosen to use. He is called out. It's not as if he was just one in a long lineage by chance of a child who happened to be born to a family. But instead, this was a child who was long expected and came at the perfect time. He was the chosen one, the Messiah, the unique one. We see in the rest of Scripture the monogenes, or the only begotten, the specifically unique, equipped, and qualified one, born of a virgin who would arise and fulfill the old order and usher in the new and the only one, absolute only one, who could do it. Who else could be from both the order of Melchizedek and from the lineage of David? Who else could fulfill Psalm 110? My Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, David speaking as chief magistrate and king, is deferring in his authority to a magistrate over him who presently lives when he said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Who could fulfill this? Who could be a son of David yet his Lord at the time he proclaimed those words? Who could be the son of David and yet qualified to be a priest? Well, Psalm 110 goes on to say, you are a priest forever, not according to the order of the Levites. No, a change in the law has occurred. Has occurred. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Imagine, if you will, a little illustration to help us, um, I hope. Imagine a family who has a young son away at war. They pray and they think about him 
in their, in their memories uh, every day. And so they make a commitment that each night they're going to remember him as if he were with them, though he's away fighting overseas. So they set an extra plate, an extra dinner setting each night. That empty plate represents some things that are sound, substantive, and legitimate. They have a true son. He is truly their family member, yet he is not presently with them now. One day, the newspapers and ticker tape parades come in. The war is won. The boys are coming home. When their son arrives, there is no longer any reason to set out an empty plate because the son has come home. The plate served a purpose for the time, yet a change has come. What was represented is now here. Now, the author of Hebrews was writing to a people who played, to take that analogy, who placed reverence and glory in the plate, the old order. They had missed that that plate was now obsolete because the sun had arrived. And this is the picture here. What can we learn from this? Never let us substitute anything of, this, of the symbols, of the order, of the works, of, of the process for the substance and the essence and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because he is the son who has arrived. And where a place setting in the old law was there, because yes, he was truly God, yes, he was the eternal son, but he had not yet arrived to fulfill the order of Melchizedek. He had not yet taken on human flesh. He had not yet stepped into his incarnate role, yet now he has. And we celebrate, and we call our neighbors, and we say, join us in the fellowship of the Son who has come. And so we see this change as something glorious indeed. There is no loss. As you put that, uh, it, you know, no longer setting out that extra plate, as not something of sadness, but rejoicing. Because the fullness, the complete, and the uh, perfection is now attained. Thirdly, under indestructible life versus bodily descent. The scriptures say in our text and others that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And when we consider the implications of this, it is quite powerful indeed. Verse 16 again reads, who has become a priest, speaking of Christ, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. In other words, if you were to ask a Levite serving in the old order, uh, what gives you the authority? Remember our text from last week from John chapter 5, where Jesus substantiates his own authority. If you were to ask a Levite serving in the old order, according to the law of Moses, by what authority do you do these things? Do you offer this incense? What would he point to? He would point to, well, I'm of a certain age. You can talk to the priests who were there during my consecration. Um, I have fulfilled the conditions of the law. I've cleansed myself in the labor, and so forth. You can tell by my garments that I'm dressed appropriately for this occasion. So by that law and by that witness, I legitimately serve in this office, in this order. Well, the question remains then, or the question comes then, what would Christ point to? The, uh, the old priest would point to the basis of the legal requirement considering bodily descent. As I just said, add to that list, I am the son of so-and-so, so-and-so is son of Levi or Aaron. But this is different in the case of Christ. The legal requirement as to bodily descent is not the witness to Jesus' legitimacy as high priest, but something greater indeed. The power of an indestructible life. 
For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Something special in history would happen. All who had faith in the coming Messiah, their heart beat quickly, and, and, and their anticipation was jarred and quickened when they heard the rabbi speak of the one who was to come. We even read in the history of the Jews when they would write uh, and, and record some of their own commentary on these passages of old. There was even among the Essene order, the Quamran community there, at the Dead Sea Scrolls, we see an expectation of, of a Melchizedek figure, a Messianic figure who would come. For those who had faith in the reality of what the law prefigured, whenever that uh, message was spoken, they would be jarred to worship and, and they would be encouraged in their faith. And, but how would they know he had, he had arrived? And this is the question that is raised and answered in our text today. Well, he would come by a unique witness, the power of an indestructible life. When Messiah comes and he begins to preach his word and to unveil his kingdom, he will go and he will be crucified. But mark my words, he himself has said, and we can with a surety know it to be true. He will not stay in that grave. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. If the high priest has power to raise himself from the dead, do you not think Melchizedek, uh, the fulfillment of Melchizedek has come? Is that not enough witness that the priest forever, Jesus Christ, transcending the old order, has arrived? Of course it is. In John chapter 5, we see when Jesus substantiates his own authority, he adds to the witness of his own resurrection the testimony of John the Baptist. For those who could receive it, the Elijah would go before preparing and making the way straight for the one who was to come. Also, we see that God the Father is a witness to whom Jesus Christ himself appeals, who at his baptism said, from glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And he repeated that attestation at the transfiguration. We see also Jesus pointing to his works in other places saying, believe me on account of the works I do. As he walks on the water, supplies bread in the wilderness, feeds thousands, opens the eyes of the blind, raises the dead, causes the lame to walk and the dumb to speak. And all of the countryside is abuzz with the power of this man to heal and to cleanse even from sin. But not to stop there, Jesus appeals to another witness still, the scriptures that went before. He said, Moses wrote about me. He witnessed. He testified about me. If you searched him out in honesty, you would affirm my ministry because he wrote of me. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, the disciples' eyes are opened as Jesus reveals himself from all the scriptures starting the law and the prophets. These are testimonies. These are witnesses. And it is witnessed of him, it says in our text in verse 17, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Second major point this morning, better hope versus former commandment. Perfection was attained in Jesus Christ and it demanded a change. The former commandment gives way to a better hope. Verse 18 in our text today. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What is the content of this better hope? Three things in brief. There is an ability to draw near. Secondly, there is an oath that's unique to Christ that did not precede him. And thirdly, he himself is the guarantor of a better covenant. This better hope allows us access to the throne of grace that was absolutely unprecedented. As we see in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's one of those phrases that has so much power punched to it in the context of Scripture. And it's too easily for us, or it's too easily missed. So let us add just a little bit of context. Turn with me to Exodus 19. And let us see how significant this promise is that we might draw near to God. The hope of drawing near to God ought to be the most powerful blessing that anyone could possibly imagine when we see the reality that it represents. And this um, is, and it's helpful for us to see the context of the old order so that we can see by contradistinction what is available in the new. Exodus 19.21, this you'll remember is God's revelation of himself on Mount Sinai. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So you see here that certain conditions were necessary before anyone could come near to the Lord. And in this context, we have exclusively the priests, when they are washed in a certain way, consecrated and so on, able to transgress that line between where you would live and where you would be immediately incinerated by the manifest glory of God. We see the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai in verse 23. The, Moses uh, said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. So you see this, that there are guards uh, and fences in place lest the people be destroyed by the holy presence of God. Later in the book of Hebrews itself, it refers to that very moment I read to you from Exodus 19 in chapter 12, verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. You may think, you know, retroactively, you might reminisce, boy, wouldn't it have been amazing to be there at Sinai? Well, let me tell you what you would have felt if you were there. Absolute terror. Everyone who was there begged for God to stop. Stop. It's too loud. It's too intense. It's too dangerous. It's too frightening. It's too terrifying. I'm going to die. I'm sure of it. If you've ever been in a movie theater and it's one of those thrillers and it's in the middle of an earthquake or something and there's a wave of destruction approaching you from the distance and these days with the advent of cinematography and CGI and surround sound it's almost as if the uh, whole scene swallows you up 
and you can imagine a nuclear blast or something, and you're standing and you're seeing this rolling wave of destruction. It's a cloud of debris that's coming at you, and you know if you turn around and run as fast as you can, you will spare yourself seconds from destruction, but you will certainly be destroyed. That's what it felt like to be at Sinai under the old order. Without the, perf the uh, perfection being attained in Christ, it was a terrifying eventuality to be there in the presence of Almighty God. We need a mediator. Moses, do it for us. You speak. And you can see like a hand to shield yourself and turning away. You do it for me. You do it for me. And the heart of man, when his sin was revealed, in, with respect to the holiness of God, when he gets a glimpse of that reality, that is his reaction. You speak for me. You do it for me. We have a mediator. He surpasses the old order, far surpasses Moses. He allows us to draw near to God in communion. In communion, where we can share a meal together. Communion. There was the presence of God all around the people at that time. But they caused them to quake in terror and to lose their senses. Indeed, so terrifying was that sight. Verse 21 tells us of Hebrews 12, I tremble with fear. Notice verse 22. This is what the new order brings us. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's the difference. A feast that's attended by you and every blood-bought saint and the angels of glory. Too many to count. That is the difference. The mediator, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. That's the new order. And to the sprinkled blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There it is again, perfection attained. The blood of the old covenant is something of the past. It's a remem <clears throat> in remembrance. It's a, a type. It pointed to Christ, but has been surpassed, eclipsed, transcended, and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The better hope allows us to draw near in communion, not terror. Secondly, there's an oath in view. And it was not without an oath, Hebrews 7.10, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. A record of the oath that God the Father makes to God the Son uh, pre-existed the writing of Hebrews all the way back under the old order prophetically in Psalm 1.10. The nature, the quality of this oath is comparable to that sworn to Abraham that we read of already in Hebrews 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, <clears throat> Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. 
so that by two unchangeable witnesses in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Would we have less assurance based on the character of God that he would fulfill his promises if he did not swear this oath? A thousand times, of course not. That would certainly be blasphemy. But this is God's condescension. This is his grace. We in our fallenness, we in our <coughs> frailty, in our <coughs> besetting unbelief, need assurance. And so for hope that is set before us, or, or in, and so for in the interest of maintaining the hope set before us, God in his grace has made his covenant, his promises, and the fulfillment of the new priesthood in Jesus Christ so sure and apparently so to us, so that we might have that anchor of the, whole, of, of the soul and a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Why? So that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast. If you are ever tempted to leave the faith, to grow weary in well-doing, to indulge, indulge dullness of hearing, like the readers did of this text, We've read of that already in, in chapter 6 especially. Look to the oath that God swore to himself and see the certainty that is communicated and the ratification of his covenant to Abraham and then repeated in Christ and his priesthood and hold fast. That oath sworn to us that's recorded in Scripture, that oath that God swore to himself is for our benefit that God recorded in Scripture all the way back in Psalm 110, but it is preserved for us that we might hold fast. Love these words. Saturate yourself in the reality and the truth and the deep theology of the book of Hebrews, and you will be an anchor. You will have an anchor, that is to say, when the storms of life, uncertainty, and unbelief would otherwise unseat you from your foundation in Christ. Finally, and related to this point, Christ is the guarantor. This makes Jesus, Hebrews 7:22, the guarantor of a better covenant. This word, this is the only time it's used in all of the scripture. It's the only in its use of this word, it's uniquely found here in the Bible, but it was frequently employed in the day and age in which this letter was written, and it was most often appear, appeared in legal and promissory documents. Something like the modern equivalent of a cosigner for a loan. And these uh, legal and promissory documents of the time, whoever was the guarantor was the one who shared the security, who put in the deposit or co-signed for the loan. And I think we can understand that analogy. Why should I trust you to pay off this loan? My first loan was $55,000 that I got for a double wide trailer and 11 acres. So. I didn't have much credit, and I, and I go, went to the bank, and my father went with me, and we discussed the possibility of him being a co-signer on my loan. Now imagine a situation where you owe a, 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 a sum of money. Um, let, let's say you, you want to purchase a property for $20,000, and you go in there with like Warren Buffett or some other you know, billionaire. Here you are with Bill Gates standing at your local bank, and he says, Consider this loan taken out by me. And then he gives that money to you. 
Will the bank give you the loan? Of course they will. This is the idea in view here. Jesus Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. My sin debt I cannot pay. But if I walk into the presence of God and Christ Jesus, the guarantor of the better covenant, is standing next to me before the Father and he says, consider his debt paid in my blood. Will God the Father grant me the riches of glory? Put yourself in those shoes. Yes and amen. Because it will glorify his Son it will demonstrate the power of his work on Calvary, and it will testify to his name for all eternity that you inhabit those pearly gates because Christ, the guarantor of a better covenant, is your collateral, so to speak. He is the one that secures your uh, forgiveness. Amazing. Finally, this morning, there were changes that happened when the per perfect order came. And those changes were in the form of priesthood, whereas before there were many in number, now one would continue forever. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Submit to you that death makes all the difference. The old order, the priests died. That was a problem. That's why there had to be many of them. They had to continue. There had to be a lineage. There had to be a family in some way to verify who would hold the priesthood next because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But our high priest was verified by death and his resurrection to hold that office continually and forever. Death makes all the difference. The old high, it was, I remember getting, I think my grandmother gave me a subscription to Biblical Archaeology Today. In 1990, I got an issue of that magazine, and on the front was an ossuary, a burial box, maybe carved of ivory looking or something like that. It was fairly ornate, and on the side of it, it said Caiaphas, the son of Joseph, or something of that sort. And in archaeology, it was a momentous day because they figured that these were probably the bones of the high priest that condemned Jesus for blasphemy, Caiaphas, at that time. If that is true, that, those are the only remains, to my knowledge, of any biblical figure in his, uh, uh, that we have today. We have the remains, likely, of Caiaphas himself. <clears throat> there are some remains that will never be found because they're not here anymore. You could search high and low with absolute omniscience all over Palestine and you will never find the bones of another high priest. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the providence of archaeology and history, we have the bones of the old order. Dead. Can't help you now. Caiaphas couldn't help you then. He's an unbeliever anyways. The priesthood was corrupt. And see, this was the problem. Rome... Uh, pre Rome took over the priesthood in many cases. It was all confusing. There were two high priests at the same time, actually, at different times and so on. And, and then people were all confused. Who is the one who will mediate for us? Um, how can we trust them when, like Eli's sons, half the time they're as wicked and corrupt and they wear it on their sleeve, just like me and my neighbor, caught in their sin? Well, that priesthood 
would not continue. It could not continue. Because of death, it was rendered obsolete. But Jesus Christ in his death satisfied the payment for sin. And in his resurrection is guaranteed high priest forever and ever. There is no ossuary for Christ. His tomb is empty and heaven is full because our Lord has risen from the dead. He continues forever. Now, our text says, because of this work, he is able to save to the uttermost. The old system, you had to continually offer sacrifices. In some cases, sinning with a high hand presumptuously weren't covered, but sins, of, uh, sins like passively were covered and so on. There was not an assurance of the washing away of sins in the old order intrinsically. Only faith in Christ would provide that assurance. But in the new order, something had changed. The work of mediation, of redemption and atonement and satisfactory payment for sin, a propitiatory, substitutionary sacrifice in Jesus Christ was of a new order and type. It will save to the uttermost a once and for all sacrifice. We do not ever need to have Christ sacrificed again we do not ever need to look to any other high priest. In fact, it's blasphemy if we do either. Why? Because it's a testimony of lack of faith that Christ in his once-for-all work on Calvary saves to the uttermost. He does. Priests used to be many in number. Not anymore. There's not a whole bunch of priests. There's no priestly order anymore other than Christ and Christ alone. Finally this morning... Our text says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Because our high priest never dies, he always continually represents us before the Father. John Owen draws our attention to this significance when he says that it is necessary that the Lord Christ should lead a mediatory life in heaven for the, perfect, for the perfecting and accomplishing of it. It's generally acknowledged that sinners could not be saved without the death of Christ, but that believers could not be saved without the life of Christ following it is not so much considered. Jesus Christ, we see his mediatorial role in the scriptures when we read like John 17. There in that text, he is praying that the church would all be one. His prayers, every last one, will be answered. And if he prays for you continually, interceding before the Father, the ground for your assurance is only magnified by that truth. In the old order, this was pictured. There were onyx stones, as I recall, affixed to Aaron, the high priest's shoulders. And they were engraved with the tribes of Israel. And also on his breastplate, if you wanted to go and read about this, go to Exodus 28 and Exodus 39. And you remember the specific stones and each one representing all of the people of God, the tribes of Israel. Thus, on his heart, as it were, and on his shoulders, with the strength to bear, uh, the, the picture, pictured there was the strength to bear their sin, and also the compassion to go on their behalf. Though Aaron himself, as high priest, could never sufficiently do this, it was a picture of one who could. And you and me, if you are in Christ today, are written on the shoulders, on the breastplate, as it were, on the palms of Christ. 
And when he steps in as intercessor, pleading on your behalf, the basis of his shed blood, that you might be in right standing with God, will God listen to his high priest? Absolutely. He is our mediator and our sacrifice, and he ever lives to intercede for us. As we close this morning, certainly this message is a fitting one to complete with communion. Let us seal the message of Hebrews 7 with this covenant meal as it were today. Communion reminds us that the mediatory work of Christ was not merely symbolic, but substantive. It actually accomplished our salvation. And as he offered his own blood for his people, that better hope of his indestructible life reminds us that he continues forever, infinitely so, interceding for us. He purchased us with his blood. And in his resurrection, he now forever serves in the office as our high priest, praying for us and interceding on our behalf. And in this, we have a greater understanding of the perfect order of the high priesthood of Melchizedek fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray in transition. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you have given us a touchstone of our faith even this day. And in what this meal represents, Lord, we see your broken body and your shed blood as our hope for salvation. I pray that those, that the reality of your work as our high priest will be remembered and proclaimed as we take communion today. I pray that every believer's lips that touches this bread and this cup this morning would be encouraged to hold fast, recognizing that they have a hope that enters into the holy place beyond the curtain. And this hope, Jesus Christ, their forerunner, is an anchor for their soul who's gone through the veil on their behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We thank you for these moments we have together. We pray that you would seal them by your spirit unto fruitful work for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.